The Sangha is invited to come back to our breathing so that the collective energy of mindfulness can bring us together as an organism, flowing as a river with no more separation. Let the whole Sangha breathe as one body, chant as one body, listen as one body, transcending the boundaries of a delusive self, liberating us from the superiority complex, the inferiority complex, and the equality complex. Thank you.
Good morning, dear Sangha. Today is the 29th of August, the year 2013, and we are in Brookleaf Monastery on our fifth day of the retreat. And uh, today we have a session of questions and answers. The children will have the time to ask a few questions first, maybe three or four. And then the teenagers will ask their questions. And finally, the young adults and adults. We know that a good question can help many people. That is why we should ask the real question, the question of our heart, the question that has to do with our practice, our suffering, our happiness. There are a few already written down, and from time to time you may read one of these questions. And the practice is that before we ask a question, we breathe in and out three times with the whole Sangha, with the sound of the bell. And uh, those of us who have a question, a real question, are invited to come up here and sit around the table. And they will turn, take turn to sit on that chair so that everyone can see him or her. It's very beautiful from here. The Sangha is beautiful. So the children, if you have some question, please come and sit up here and look down. Teenagers, young adults, adults.
the children uh, will ask uh, three or four questions. But there are more children than questions. <laughs> so maybe two children go ask one question. So dear Sangha, let us uh, breathe with the sound of the bell before we ask the first question. Breathing in, I know my Sangha is there. Breathing out, I smile to my Sangha. Why do people get so angry sometimes when they don't even mean to get angry? Very angry sometimes. Why do people get so angry and why do their hearts get so filled up with anger when they don't even mean to get that angry? The dear tire friend is asking, why do people get so angry and their hearts so filled up with anger when it's not what they really mean to do? Hmm. That is a good question. There is a grain, a seed of anger in ourselves. And there is also a seed of uh, love, compassion in, our, in ourselves. And a person who allows the seed of anger to be watered every day gets angry, gets angry much more easily than the person who does not allow the seed of anger in him or her to water, to be water. If uh, you watch television, and if you see a lot of anger in television, and then you help the seed of anger in you to grow, grow, grow every day. And if uh, the seed of anger in you is strong and then you get angry so easily, and anger does not exactly come from the outside, it is from inside. So uh, we should be careful when we watch television and play electronic game or having a conversation with other people. Don't allow these things to water the seed of anger in us. Because if the seed of water in us grow big, and then we can get angry very easily. And when we get angry, we may we suffer. 
and we will make the other person suffer. And there is a seed of compassion, a seed of love in you. And if you read books, uh, listen to Dhamma talks, uh, listen to conversations that have a lot of love and compassion, and then the seed of love in you will grow. And if you have a lot of love in you, you are a happy person. And you never get angry. Uh, so we have to take care of the two seeds in us, anger and love. And meditation can help you a lot. Uh, and when you, when you have more compassion in yourself, you are happy. And uh, even when there is a provocation, you can smile. You can smile. In the beginning, we can smile to our anger. And when we succeed in smiling to your anger, to our anger, we be able to smile to the anger and violence of the other person. The other person is very angry. The other person is very violent. And he is saying, she is saying something very strong, very mean. And she is about to hit you. And yet, because you, you are protected by the energy of compassion, you don't get angry and you smile to him. Dear friend, I know you suffer. You don't have to suffer like that. And that is a success. That is a victory for you and for the other person. And that victory, a practitioner of meditation can have every day. Okay. Thank you for asking the question. Why do people have to suffer? Tai is breaking in and out deeply to allow the question to go deep in him before he offers some answer. Why do people have to suffer? Because uh, suffering and happiness are part of life. Suffering and happiness uh, have to be together. This is a very deep teaching of the Buddha, like uh, the left and the right. You see? If the left is there and the right must be there. Right? If the left say, the right, you have to go away. I don't want you. 
That's nonsense because uh, if there is no left, there is no right either. It's difficult, but you can understand. Like uh, uh, in order to grow lotus flowers, you need the mud. The mud does not smell good, but the lotus flower smells very good. But without the mud, you cannot grow lotus flower. So there is a connection between suffering and happiness. Suffering is the mud, and lotus is happiness. And if you know how to make good use of the mud, you can grow beautiful lotus. If you know how to make good use of suffering, you can create happiness. That is, where, that, that is why we need suffering, we need some suffering in order to create happiness. Uh, and we have learned that uh, you have enough suffering already, you don't have to create more suffering. Uh, what we want to do is to learn how to make good use of suffering in order to make happiness. And in this retreat, we have learned this very important. If we know how to suffer, we suffer much, much less. We suffer only a little. And that allowed us to have more understanding and compassion that make us happy. That is, using but in order to grow lotus flower. It's a very important practice. I hope later in schools they will teach us that kind of uh, art, that kind of uh, practice, how to make good use of suffering in order to create uh, happiness. So uh, later on you will learn about the goodness of suffering because suffering is helpful, is useful sometimes. Because when you look at suffering, you understand and suddenly compassion and love is born in you, you see? So suffering is not entirely negative. It's something helpful like the mud. When you grow vegetable um, organically, you know how to preserve the, uh, um, the garbage and make into compost and nourish flowers and vegetables. You don't throw the garbage away because the garbage can be useful. Uh, so that is the same with uh, suffering. Uh, you don't have to throw suffering away. You can make suffering into a kind of compost in order to make the flower of happiness. Thank you. What do you have to do to have a calm mind? What do you have to do in order to have a calm mind? You want to have a calm body also? <laughs> <laughs> mm. 
I think it's nice to have a calm body. Having a body that is calm, it's easier to have a mind that is calm. Because body and mind, they like to go together. So when you come to a retreat like this one, you learn how to breathe mindfully, how to walk uh, peacefully. And if you do it well, and then every in-breath, every out-breath helps to calm your body and calm your mind. Try. Thank you. Uh, that is enough for the children. Now uh, the children can go out and continue their practice uh, uh, somewhere. Uh, <laughs> in the practice center, it's now uh, time for, uh, for teenagers to ask their questions. Have a good day.
If you had a chance to live your life again, would you choose the same path or would you like to ex experience a new life? I think, uh, I believe that I am not living just one life, I live many lives at the same time. Uh, I am living the life of a monk, but also I live the life of a tree, of a bird, of a person in society, because I am in touch. When we have a retreat like this, many friends come and share with us their suffering, their happiness. And we, while we share like that, we live their life. We are not cut off from their life. Uh, your happiness becomes my happiness. Your suffering uh, is my suffering. So uh, you are not, uh, you, uh, you are really in touch. And when um, we do walking meditation, we go through uh, trees and uh, river and uh, flowers, and we get in touch with them. Uh, when we eat, we get in touch with the cosmos, so we are always in touch with other forms of life. And uh, I have to say that uh, as a monk, you have uh, more, more time to enjoy, <laughs> to enjoy uh, life, to enjoy whatever is there, you see. Um, if, uh, I have to take care of a family. I have to uh, pay uh, the rent uh, of a house, pay electricity, uh, have a car and things like that. I have to work hard. And uh, not much time is left for me to enjoy being with nature, uh, other people, trees, birds and so on. And um, as a monk, I have time not only for myself, but uh, for my community, my disciples, my friends. And I can offer them my energy, my um, teaching, and my time. And that is very satisfying, because when you can help other people to suffer less, and to be joyful, or you are rewarded by that kind of um, joy and happiness. And, uh, and I believe <laughs> that to practice as a monk is much easier than to practice as a lay person. <laughs> so I chose the easiest way. <laughs> uh, why do I have to change? <laughs> 
So next live, I will continue as a monk. Dear Thai, dear Sangha, my 13-year-old sister has been with Blue Cliff Monastery for the past month. She started tour with them, and she went to Canada. Um, for, it's been really hard, and I was just wondering how can I, in my practice, how can I practice more non-attachment? So, dear Thay, um, our friend is the sister of Asha, who is uh, a young teenage girl who's been living in Blue Cliff Monastery and also went with Thay and the Sangha to Toronto. And uh, she hopes to become a nun. And our friend here is asking, uh, she's saying that it's been a little bit difficult. She misses her sister. She misses Asha and she wants to know how can she practice not to be attached to her sister who's now living in the Blue Cliff Monastery and not in the home with her. There are many solutions. <laughs> the first uh, solution is to join your sister. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the second uh, uh, solution is that you keep in touch with her, inquire about what she's doing every day, and you try to do the same. So, although you are, there is a distance, uh, geographical distance, but you are very close to each other when you share the same kind of interest and joy. Because the true practice can bring joy, happiness, and love. And uh, the distance uh, cannot, uh, cannot separate you. If uh, you are of the same interest, uh, she learned about how you are doing, practicing, and you learn about how uh, she is doing in Brooklyn, and then you, maybe you, you are closer than if you are physically uh, together. You know, because there are father and son, uh, who stay together in the same uh, house, but they are not really close to each other. But there is a couple of father and son who do not live in the same, but they communicate, communicate well. So they understand well, each other well, so they are really together. And many solutions.
What made you decide that you wanted to become a monk? When I was a, a little boy, I happened to see the drawing of a, a Buddha on the cover of a Buddhist magazine. The artist did very well because the Buddha was sitting peacefully and happily uh, uh, in the grass, on the grass. I was very impressed and I wanted to be someone like the Buddha, uh, peaceful, peaceful, happy. Because around me people were not um, peaceful like that and happy like that. So that is the first time the seed of uh, uh, the desire to be a monk was water. And I nourished that seed until one day uh, uh, I learned that there was a, a monk uh, living and practicing on uh, a mountain 10 kilometers from there. And uh, we tried to, uh, to go and see him. And I have learned, um, because in the same Buddhist magazines, uh, had article, uh, and we learned from these articles that um, during the 11th century, the 12th century, the 13th centuries, during the Li and Tan dynasties in Vietnam, the kings practiced Buddhism, and the people practiced Buddhism, the, and uh, there was peace, uh, long-lasting peace for 300 years, and the country was uh, strong enough to 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 prevent the invasion of uh, a big country in the north. <laughs> so we know that the practice of meditation, the practice of Buddhism can, can, can help the country strong and happy, and that uh, nourish my desire of becoming a, a monk. And I did not know much about Buddhism. I did not imagine that when I grow up as a monk, I have to do I will have to do this, uh, the work like going around and give Dharma talks. And, <laughs> <laughs> and interviewed by newspapers. I could not imagine I, I would have to do these kind of things. But because uh, you learn that uh, when people come and practice, uh, they transform, they reconcile with each other. So you are encouraged to continue uh, your life as a monk, and uh, having had uh, learned so many things, I want to transmit these um, uh, wisdom, skills, and uh, practice to the younger generation. That is why uh, now I have many uh, uh, children, spiritual children. They are not blood uh, children, but I love them. Uh, deeply, because we, uh, we share the same ideal of uh, service, and uh, uh, we have many uh, disciples who are um, uh, lay practitioners, and we form a Sangha, and we create uh, the wholesome energy of mindfulness and compassion, 
that uh, that uh, that can modify the state of the world. Because if uh, you have uh, more compassion, understanding, and the world will suffer less. And uh, when you come uh, uh, to uh, Blue Cliff and practice with us like this, you participate in the work uh, of um, creating more peace, understanding, and compassion for the world. What is the hardest thing that you practice? What is the hardest thing that you practice? That is not to allow yourself to be overwhelmed by despair. That's the hardest thing. Because when you are overwhelmed by despair, that is the worst thing that can happen to you. I remember when the war was going on, we did not see the we did not see the light uh, at the end of the tunnel. It seems that the war will go on and on and on forever. And the young people came and asked, Dear Thay, do you think that the war will end soon? And it's very difficult to answer because you have not seen the light at the end of the tunnel. But if you say, I don't know, if you, 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 you say, I don't know, and then you water the seed of despair in them. So they had to breathe in and out a few times. And then what they said is that, dear friends, the Buddha said that everything, everything is impermanent. The war should be impermanent also. And it should end someday. Let us continue to to work for peace. You know that during the war, we young monks and nuns and lay practitioners we organized um, the School of Youth for Social Service, like a peace court um, created by John F. Kennedy. And we go into the war zone and we help the wounded people. We help uh, uh, create uh, refugee centers. We help them uh, a chance to go back to their um, normal life. And we rebuild uh, the villages that have been bombed. There is a village called Talok, not very far from the demilitarized zone. 
separating north and south. The village of Taluk was bombed, completely destroyed. And our young social workers, including monks and nuns and lay practitioners, we helped rebuild the village. But it was bombed again and destroyed again. And our social workers um, why us and asked whether they should rebuild it. And he said, rebuild it. And we rebuilt it. And it was bombed again. Four times. And if we give up, that will create a feeling of despair. That is why we keep rebuilding rebuild, rebuilding and rebuilding. So the hardest thing is to not to lose your hope, to give up, to despair. That is the hardest thing. And we have gone through two wars like that. And um, we saw French soldiers came and kill and get killed. We saw young American came and kill and get killed. You know that 50,000 50, um, young Americans were killed in Vietnam. And hundreds of thousands of them uh, wounded. And many had to be cared by psychotherapists and so on. Uh, in, the, in a situation of uh, utmost suffering like that, if we don't have a practice, we cannot survive. And uh, we practice in such a way that we can preserve uh, our, uh, our hope and our compassion. And uh, when the, uh, the journalists talk about, uh, ask us questions about that, about uh, how you feel about uh, young Americans coming and uh, and uh, kill and die in Vietnam. Uh, we said that uh, they are victims. We don't hate them. They are victims of uh, a kind of policy that is not very intelligent. Uh, a policy based on fear. fear of uh, uh, the taking over of, by communists of the whole Southeast Asia. And um, they are victims. They had to go to come here to kill and to die. You understand? So we are not angry at them. And um, in 66, 1966, they was invited to come to America. And uh, he had a chance to, uh, to, uh, to talk to the American people about the war. <coughs> and there was uh, a very angry uh, young American who stood up and told her this, you should not be here. You should not go back and fight uh, uh, American imperialism in Vietnam. 
And you have to kill the American soldiers there. And his answer is that uh, I thought that uh, the root of the war is here. That is not in, uh, in Vietnam. Uh, the young Americans who came uh, in Vietnam, they are just, just victims. So I had to come here and tell the American people that this war is not uh, helping Vietnam at all. So without, um, without that kind of uh, understanding and compassion, uh, you do not, uh, you will lose yourself in anger and hate. And you cannot say things like that and help the American people to understand and to reverse uh, uh, the, to shape to the policy. And um, there was a, a peace movement in America opposing the war in Vietnam. Uh, and uh, as uh, people demanded peace and did not get it, they got very angry. So there was a lot of anger in the peace movement. And when they to America and talked to these groups, they said that, well, if you have a lot of anger in you, you cannot achieve peace. You have to be peace before you can do peace. And understanding is very important. You, you need to know how to write a love letter to your president, to your Congress, and telling them that you don't, don't want the war. And if you write a, a strong, angry letter, they will not read it. So I was able to, to speak like that and help some, somehow uh, to end the war. And uh, understand suffering, uh, have uh, compassion to, burn, to be born in you. And uh, you are free, you be free from despair, from anger, and you can help uh, the cause of peace. How have you detached from your strongest? How have you detached from your strongest attachments in life? How can you detach from your strongest detachment in life? Interesting. <laughs> I think meditation can help. Uh, 
you, when you look at the uh, object of your attachment, and if you see that attachment is bringing you happiness and joy, and make people around you happy and joyful, there's no, there's no reason why you have to remove that attachment. Right? And if you notice that the object of attachment, of your attachment, bring you suffering, bring suffering to that person and to the world, I think uh, that kind of enlightenment will help you to detach from it. Thank you. I think after this we should give grown-up people a chance to ask the questions. Um, I know as a monk, you do things very slowly and take your time with everything, like mindful eating and walking meditation. Is there any way to do something that's much faster, like a, like a sport, mindfully? Is there... Is there any way to still appreciate nature and earth when you're running or swimming, for example? When you come to Brookleaf, you can see the monks and the nuns playing basketball. Uh, the, uh, table tennis. They can do like you do in the world. And when they cross uh, the street, they have to go fast. <laughs> they know how to do that. Otherwise, they will be run over by vehicles. And uh, from time to time, it rains during walking meditation. And uh, instead of walking slowly, they begin to run. <laughs> and maybe 1,000 people run after they. <laughs> and we call it running meditation. <laughs> it's possible to run mindfully. The practice is to be mindful. You can run slowly. You can run... Uh, 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 you can run slowly or you can run or you can walk slowly or you can run fast the, the, the question is not to be slow or to be fast the question is whether you are mindful so but uh, for beginners to do slowly is more easy to be mindful and after that you can do fast and you can still maintain your mindfulness. Uh, when you do things quickly, 
without mindfulness, you lose yourself easily. That's not good. So you have to learn how to do uh, slowly first in order for mindfulness to be possible. And after that, you can do uh, much, much uh, more quickly. And uh, essential is, is that you don't lose yourself, even if you are in a situation where, where you have to do things very quickly. So the conclusion is that it's not a problem uh, of being slow or quick. The problem is about to be mindful or not to be mindful. This is my first retreat I've been to. Um, I didn't know what to expect. And I uh, found a lot of kindness, a lot of love, a lot of caring, a lot of understanding. I've experienced suffering that few will ever, ever experience. Uh, I've seen suffering, sadness, very few will ever, ever see. And, an experience. Uh, along with that, I've, I've seen kindness, compassion, love, and support towards myself from all parts of the world that few will ever, ever see uh, or feel. And I've also felt the anger and the hatred that few will ever, ever feel or have to deal with. My question is, what, what could we have done or different or what could have happened different to prevent this? None of it's anything I ever wished for or wanted. The suffering or the compassion or the happiness or the love that came from that was unwarranted. Um, I lost my son, my one and only son, Jesse, December 14th in Sandy Hook Elementary School. I struggle with that every day, and uh, I've had some pretty, pretty bad days and pretty bad times in my life, and there's no, no way to describe that, the suffering, the heart will break, and uh, I keep thinking in my mind, well, what could have prevented what happened that day? It wasn't an act of war, it wasn't an accident, it wasn't an illness, it was something that happened for no reason, a horrendous act of violence and the loss of lives. And uh, I, I guess 
I'd, li I'd like to, but there's probably no answer. But uh, my question is, what, what could have prevented what happened that, that day? And what could help prevent that in the future? And what, what changes could we all, all make to, to help try to prevent things of, of that and suffering like that to people and humans in the future? Our friend um, lost a son at Sandy Hook School. Newtown. Yes, in Newtown, Connecticut. And he's experienced very deep suffering and also experienced a lot of love and support in this retreat. And our friend is asking what, what could have prevented what happened at Sandy Hook School? I think if we, we do not do something and then that will happen again somewhere else in America and in other places. There will be young men or women that will be bringing guns to school and shoot. We have to see now there are potential uh, um, young people like that. So your son is um, telling us, telling you, that uh, the person who, who did the killing was a victim. He did not know how to handle the suffering, the anger, the violence in him. His teacher, his uh, father, his mother has not uh, instructed him how to handle the energy of violence and anger in him. Mm, sometimes he may be uh, kind, uh, sweet, but sometimes else he's, uh, uh, he's uh, pushed by the energy of violence and anger and despair to do these kind of things. And when we look into a young person, we may see all these uh, possibilities of being loving or of being violent. So uh, your son is telling you and us that we should do something in order to prevent that, that to happen again. We should uh, practice. We should know the way to handle the violence and the anger in us. And we should transmit that, uh, that practice to the younger generation. And the purpose of a retreat like this is exactly to, 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 to do that. How to learn to be happy, how to uh, learn how to be happy, learn how to, to handle uh, uh, suffering violence, fear, anger in us. And that is why many of our monks and nuns and lay teachers are working with school teachers and parents in order to transmit that kind of skill, 
that kind of practice. And after having um, mastered that, they can transmit that to their children, their students in school. And uh, please support us. And I think your son is telling you to support us in this kind of work. Uh, we have uh, we have helped uh, thousands of teachers, school teachers in India, in other countries as well, and also in America. Uh, Governor Brown of California, he allowed us to um, to experiment that kind of uh, transmission in uh, two. Uh, private school in California, and we have uh, many people who are are ready to support us in that. Uh, You don't have to be a Buddhist in order to learn and to practice this, Uh, uh, to learn how to handle fear, violence, despair in yourself, how to say things that can restore communication and reconcile. you don't need to embrace a religion in order to, to practice this. So we suffer uh, the same kind of suffering that uh, you have uh, experienced. We, if uh, the situation happened like that, we have to suffer. But uh, there is a way to suffer. If uh, we have some mindfulness and concentration and some insight, we will suffer, but we will suffer less. Uh, the, the period of suffering might be shortened. And after that, we can develop our understanding and compassion. And we can transform our suffering into something more positive and help uh, other people, uh, especially the younger generation. when she died from leukemia. And I try very hard to remember that she's with me, that she's in every cell in my body. But still I feel waves of such deep sorrow and, and longing. I want, I want to be with her. And I wonder, my question is how or is it possible to ever really, truly be happy again? Uh, the other day we uh, spoke about a cloud in the sky. And when the cloud uh, transforms herself into the rain, 
It's hard for you to recognize your cloud in the rain. You need to have the kind of eyes, the wisdom of uh, signlessness, uh, in order to recognize your beloved in her new form. She's there. If you know how to look deeply, she's still with you. She's around. And the fact is that she is impossible for her to die. She just uh, manifests herself in new forms, looking around. If we are caught by our habit, we can only recognize uh, her in her in her, her old form, appearance. And that is why we suffer. But if we are opened, if we can see our cloud in the rain, we can stop our suffering. And we can uh, restore our joy. Um, before giving birth to me, my mother miscarriage my big brother. And uh, I learned that from my mother. And I often asked the question when I was young, whether that boy that she miscarried is me or another, another boy. It may be just me, but I, I said, that, well, I don't want to come out yet. I want to wait. <laughs> so she really did not uh, uh, miss, did not miscarry anyone, because uh, I, I have decided uh, to wait. It's like uh, one, one winter, when I was work, doing walking meditation, and I saw, and I saw many buds of flowers of a kind of a uh, uh, tree called uh, Japanese konyashi. Uh, it was warm at that time. So uh, the birds came out very beautifully. And I said, well, this uh, new year, we'll have uh, flowers to decorate the Buddha's altar. Because uh, you need to cut uh, a few branches and bring it into um, the warm, and they will blossom beautifully. But a few days later, before I can cut them, there was a wave of uh, cold, and all of them died. So I said that this uh, new year, we will have no flowers to decorate our Buddha's altar. See? But after that, the warmth, weather came again, and new birds appear on the branches. So the, the old birds who have died, they have not really died. They come again. This life is very strong. Life is stronger than death. So the, the question is that, are they the same? So if uh, we are mindful, we are concentrated, and then we can recognize our beloved one um, 
right here and right now in her new form. And we can restore um, uh, our joy and happiness. She's always there, not only in yourself. You have to recognize her in her new forms. And she may not be just one. She can be two, three, four, five. If you come uh, with us and live a few months here with us, you're going to have her in, uh, uh, in this monastery. Uh, you have uh, three, four, five daughters instead of one. Thai, dear Sangha, <clears throat> I was very moved yesterday by your Dharma talk. I think I'm not the only one. Um, I think that the influence that you had on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is undeniable, and the influence that he had on you was an important encounter that you had that one year later he gave such an important statement against the war in Vietnam. And this week has been beautiful and difficult because I have a heavy heart uh, looking at what is happening now and seeing that 50 years later it seems that we are, or the United States is on the brink of yet another military intervention, this time in, in Syria. And I wonder if you were the president's spiritual advisor <laughs> and had a moment with him, um, what you would do and what you would tell him. And just a related question for those of us who are dealing with this information and those in Syria and in Egypt who are dealing with their despair, what would you tell them? I believe that what I will tell him, he will not do it. <laughs> uh, because uh, he works with his team. He has his own Sangha. He has his advisors and uh, ministers and uh, party. He has his own Sangha. 
maybe um, he may see the point and the wisdom in what I tell him, but he will not be, he may not be able to do it because he is not operating just as a person. He has to operate as a group. Uh, you believe that a person like uh, the president of uh, the United States has a lot of power and can do everything that he can do? It's not. That's not true. Nobody feel uh, um, that uh, they don't have enough uh, power like a president of a big country. They feel powerless. What I suggest uh, to Dr. King is um, we got to have a Sangha. A Sangha that uh, has a lot of understanding, compassion, and brotherhood. And if you have such a Sangha, and then a war will not be possible. Because uh, advisors, uh, collaborators, uh, friends, supporters think the same way, see the things in the same way in the light of understanding and compassion. There must be other ways than the way of using the gun. I think uh, President Obama tried to do his best. Sometimes he practiced uh, loving speech very well. Very well. Uh, we need uh, loving speech. We need uh, uh, deep listening. But we also need uh, the collective energy of a Sangha to support us in order to do it. And otherwise, you are under pressure of doing uh, the thing that the collective. Uh, uh, consciousness want you to do. If the country is uh, still has a lot of fear and anger, and you have to operate on that uh, collective uh, uh, energy of fear and anger. So to transform, to change the way of thinking in the country, especially uh, you begin first with uh, your group, you change your thinking. You are capable of being together in harmony. You have to share the same kind of vision, understanding, and compassion. And then you are capable of changing the thinking, uh, the way of looking of your people. And now you have enough power uh, not to do it or to do it. So uh, when uh, uh, President Obama uh, suggests that we, we let the uh, freedom ring, that's, uh, that is more political freedom than the freedom inside. Freedom from misunderstanding, freedom from fear and anger, freedom from despair. 
And many countries are operating on fear and anger. And because uh, the people in that country, uh, they have not cultivated enough uh, understanding and compassion. So, uh, what we do uh, in our daily life, like uh, helping uh, uh, organizing this retreat, is the work of promoting understanding, compassion, and harmony. And that is helping the president, helping the country. Uh, we do not talk uh, in political terms, but we are really supporting the country, the government, the party to do the right thing. In order not to do it, you have to be very powerful. Otherwise, you will be pushed to do it, even if you don't want to do it. I don't think that President Obama wants to do it. Chris O'Donnell. Chris O'Donnell, are you there? Please come. Thank you, Ty, for the opportunity to uh, ask you a specific question. Um, I'm very glad that before you referred to combatants as victims as well. My question is somewhat similar. Uh, I work for the United Nations uh, in the Department of Peacekeeping Operations as a disarmament, demobilization, reintegration officer. Put simply, that means um, I negotiate and uh, prepare programs for uh, combatants after conflict so that they can transition to a civilian life. Um, done that for 12 years. I've lived in Congo, Eastern Congo, in uh, Haiti, been to Afghanistan. But more recently, uh, what concerns me is that uh, I just spent uh, the last month in Mogadishu in Somalia. And uh, most of the time in dealing with young men and uh, that are involved in these armed groups, in particular, now we seem to have competition. We have groups such as Al-Qaeda that are asking them to come and join them with armed groups. I think people perceive that as um, a religious war, but in fact, I think they are appealing to very poor young people's sense of being dispossessed, sense of injustice in the world, and they have nothing. Al-Qaeda gives them something, they gives them a little money, but they also become part of something. Even though it's a jihadi movement, they feel respected, maybe feared, and it's very hard to compete with that. So I guess my question is, I'm looking for some guidance as to how we might approach these young men how we might uh, design programs that help them, wanted well, to, to convince them, because I find it difficult. 
because I think the Western states do forget them unless they do pick up a gun, that we um, design an approach that convinces them to come towards peace, to put down their guns. And um, when we have so little means, and Al-Qaeda and others have a lot more means, and a lot more convincing and strong arguments for them in their particular situation. So I was just hoping for a little bit, I know that's difficult, but a little bit of your wisdom with regard to that situation. Thank you. So, dear Tai, our friend um, is working with the UN, the United Nations Peacekeeping Forces in uh, demobilization and disarmament. He works, he's worked in many of the countries where the greatest suffering has happened from violence of war, many different countries. And, um, but right now, his question has to do with in being in countries after conflict where the Al-Qaeda is very strong. And he's generally working with young men who have been in an armed conflict. He's trying to help them to go in the direction of peace. These are often uh, young men who are dispossessed. They are maybe destitute. They have maybe no money, no power. And Al-Qaeda is standing right behind, ready to offer them a little bit of money, some power of the, the guns, but also the kind of status. Because um, our friend is saying that this is not necessarily only a religious war that Al-Qaeda is presenting, but they present themselves as fighting injustice. That Al-Qaeda says, we are the ones fighting the injustice, and you can join us in the fight and become warriors with us. So our friend is asking, especially coming as a Western person, did you say? Yeah. When he's coming and trying to help these young men to, to turn away from violence and go in the direction of peace, what can he do to... to help them make that choice and not to choose what Al-Qaeda is offering them. Maybe uh, we should begin by inviting some of them to come to a place where there are kind people, people who have a compassion, understanding, uh, who can help other people. And uh, and do not have uh, to spend a lot of money. Uh, in order to be be happy. I think uh, these young people, they need uh, to survive uh, and they need some money and they are offered some money in order to do the things that will make them suffer later. So one of the things you can show them is that uh, you don't need a lot of money in order to, uh, to live happily. Suppose you come to Plum Village and see the monks and the nuns living. 
No one of us has a private home. No one of us has a car, private car. No one of us has a private bank account. And yet, happiness is possible with, uh, with uh, brotherhood, sisterhood, with uh, the feeling that you are useful to society. And uh, happiness is possible when you have compassion and understanding. That you cannot talk to them because uh, they should see by themselves. Come and see by yourself. And you are convinced that there is a way of life uh, that can be fulfilling. And maybe uh, some of them can have a direct experience of that kind of living and serving. And we we'll go back and tell them, tell the rest. Uh, you, we come from a Western uh, country. They may not believe you, but some of them, uh, after having the, had experience, tell them they will uh, understand. I think uh, the practice of uh, looking, listening to the suffering inside of us and in the other person, a group of person is very important. So uh, we can find ways to show them that uh, not only we suffer, but uh, the people we are about to punish, they suffer also. They suffer also. So that is a practice um, of uh, the precept regarding uh, understanding suffering. By many ways, you, uh, you can recognize and understand the suffering in the world. In, and even in the people, you, they tell you to be your enemies, uh, representing evil. So uh, that kind of understanding, understanding suffering will bring about uh, compassion. <coughs> and compassion help them to suffer less. And when you suffer less, you can, you can help another person to suffer less. So there, there must be a kind of strategy in order to really help them. Uh, money is just a small part of it. Yeah. And if you are surrounded by friends, uh, co-workers, who have the same kind of vision and understanding, and then you will succeed. Uh, you cannot do it alone. You have got to have a Sangha behind you, supporting you, always uh, sup uh, supplying you with uh, the kind of energy of understanding and compassion so that you can continue. Otherwise, you will give up after some time of trying. It's very important. If you want to do something, be with Sangha. Be with Sangha. And if uh, President Obama has a Sangha like that, he will be able to do a lot of good things. And the truth is, the same thing is true with all of us. If you want to achieve something in your life, you need a Sangha. The Buddha knew that, that, that exactly after enlightenment, the first thing he did is to go and look for elements of his Sangha. 
Thank you for sharing with us the fruits of your long life of practice. My question is about how to practice joyfully with the physical limitations and the pains that happen as we grow older. I'm more than 20 years younger than you are, but already there are things that I used to enjoy doing, like walking for long distances or sitting for a long time, and those things now are not easy for me to do or they cause me pain. And I would like to learn from you how to use these experiences to to help me to live joyfully and to make other people happy instead of letting these experiences isolate me and separate me from other people. Thank you. Our friend is sharing about um, her experience with some of the physical limitations that are coming into her life as she grows older. And she has um, pain now in doing things that she used to be able to do easily, like walking for a longer distance or sitting for a longer time. And she really has the aspiration to use those painful experiences as the kind of mud to grow a lotus of greater connection and joy in her life and not to drown in the, the, the pain and allow it to become isolating. So how can she practice to, to use these experiences to grow in her joy and her connection? I think there are, <clears throat> there are moments when uh, it's not uh, too painful and we have to make uh, to profit from these moments. We have to enjoy deeply these moments. And we have to use these moments to, to do the exercise that help the body to, to restore something that uh, it has lost. Um, when you do exercise, it's not only for you to, um, to have a better uh, body but you feel happiness you feel happiness and joy that help uh, nourish you uh, when I do uh, mindful movements I like to think of my teacher I think to, I like to think of uh, colleagues of mine who have already passed away many of them, and those who are already on wheelchairs. So when, when I do these uh, mindful moments, I feel how precious, how wonderful that I can still do it. So every, every movement gives me a lot of joy. That is very important. Uh, you have to enjoy every moment that is left for you to live and there are ways to, to enjoy these moments deeply. And if you know how to live happily uh, the present moment, it will help improve, uh, improve the situation of your, your health. 
we know that uh, relaxation is possible in the standing position, the walking position, the sitting position, and the lying position. So um, we, we learn how to be uh, relaxed in all these four uh, uh, positions, and uh, and that will help uh, reduce uh, the amount of pain in our body. And then the, the people around us they are interested to learn about that uh, uh, because uh, many of them are still young, but they already have. Uh, that kind of pain and tension in, in their body. And um, it is possible for you to create a sangha, a group of people of all kind of ages in order to, to enjoy the sangha and to share and to learn from them. Dear Tai and dear Sangha, um, <clears throat> I've been very moved with your uh, work with the children this week. Um, uh, as a child myself, I was sort of devoid of a emotionally available male figure. And so I've been very joyful for them to have someone like you. Um, and sort of looking for that male connection, I've tried to connect to an older stepbrother who sexually abused me. And um, it's been very difficult to engage in deep interpersonal relationships with an open heart. I have two beautiful, wonderful daughters who I love more than anything. So I know I have the capacity for unconditional love. I've worked a lot with compassion and understanding to come to a level of forgiveness for the individual who did this and the individuals who knew about it and did nothing. What I haven't come to the ability to do is to forgive myself for having trusted someone um, who hurt me. And my question is, is how to use the energy of mindfulness to forgive myself and to open my heart so I can have deep meaningful, intimate, interpersonal relationship. So, dear Tai, our friend um, has been very moved by seeing the experiences of the children on this retreat. And um, he suffered um, as a young person from sexual abuse by a stepbrother. And he has been practicing to forgive but where he's finding some difficulty is in forgiving himself for having trusted a person who then hurt him very deeply to forgive himself for having put himself in the position of trusting someone who then hurt him. 
and he, he would like to ask Thai how he can find that forgiveness towards himself so that he can open his heart and connect more deeply and intimately with other people. In one of the sutras, the Buddha said that uh, the eyes is an ocean. The eyes is an ocean. And uh, there may be hidden waves underneath. There may be monsters underneath. And that's why if you sail on the ocean, you have to be mindful because the monsters and the hidden wave can come up at any time. Although on appearance it looks very peaceful. So the eyes is a deep ocean. And then he continued, the nose is an ocean. The tongue, the body also. And the mind. Sometimes you see that that person is very kind. You cannot Imagine that he can do such a thing to you. And yet when the time comes, monsters emerge from the depth. Hidden waves emerge from the depth. And if you trust the appearance, you will have to suffer. So this is the teaching of Buddha and myself, I have put that teaching into, into music. We, we sing that in Brahmalish. Makladai Yangshan, the eyes is a deep ocean. And that is why the practice of uh, mindful manners is very important. Um, like uh, to have a second body. In Brahmalish, every time a monk goes somewhere, or a nun goes somewhere, he or she should have a second body. We protect each other. Because there may be difficult situation arising, and if you do not have a second body protecting you, helping you, you may get into trouble. So having a second body is one of the mindful manners. Even when you go to the internet, it may be dangerous. Uh, you need a second body sitting close to you. So, um, in the time of the Buddha, um, there was a nun who crossed uh, the wood alone, and she encountered uh, a, a man who was about to uh, violate, to rape her. And she was calm enough to say that, don't do it. If you do it, King, Bimbus, Bim, King Bimbisara will kill you because uh, Bimbisara is a practitioner, uh, uh, a disciple of the Buddha. So thanks to the fact that she was um, calm, indulgence, that the other person did not harm her. And when she came home and tell the Buddha that story, the Buddha said, now nuns, you nuns, 
everywhere you go, you have to get a second body. That is to protect you. And that is, uh, in Blumlesh, that applies to the monks also, because the monk can be abused by another man. And uh, we have uh, living quarters for the monks. And we usually put three monks in a room and not two. Uh, and these um, belong to the kind of mindful uh, manners that can help protect us. We have the precepts, like five precepts, ten precepts, and so on. But beside the precepts, we have mindful manners for, pro for preventive uh, practice. It's better to prevent than to heal after. So that is why it's very important that we, um, we, uh, we follow the teaching of the Buddha. Not only we observe the precepts, but we observe also the mindful manners. It's like um, you can cross the tree when the light is red. You, if you can go very quickly, but uh, you violate the law if you if you do so. Of course, you can you can you can avoid uh, being run over by a car. And that is a mindful manner. It's preventive. And that is why we should uh, uh, we should uh, create that kind of law, that kind of pre preventive means to protect us and protect our children. And uh, that. Uh, Stepbrother, uh, at time he was very kind, very pacific. But when the moment came, uh, hidden graves uh, uh, come up, monster come up, and that is why, and that can be in everyone, because the Buddha said the eye is a deep ocean, or uh, a deep ocean, not only his eye. But my own eyes is a deep ocean. That's why I have to protect my eyes, protect my body, protect my uh, tongue uh, uh, by the energy of mindfulness. And a friend uh, close to you, a co-practitioner, can also, also offer his or her energy of mindfulness to protect you. I think um, uh, if you are a legislator, legislator, if you are a psychotherapist, if you are a parent, if you are a school teacher, uh, you, you may like to meditate on that in order to create a means for your protection and the protection of a younger generation. And if uh, you understand that um, everyone's eyes who have, can have monsters behind, and then you understand and you can forgive more easily and restore a good relationship. One more? Yes. Dittai Brenda is Thai student for 18 years and today is the first day she has enough courage to ask Thai a question. She's been very shy. <laughs>
Dear Thai, dear Sangha, in my family, my blood family, um, there are many generations of people who have suffered with depression and anxiety. Um, and this has been transmitted to me and to my daughter. Um, and so my question is about those who suffer with elements of depression and mental illness that perhaps come not only from um, how we consume and um, rumination on difficult things, but also from uh, biological seeds that come to us from our ancestors and um, how we practice to transform the biological seeds as well. I think I think the environment plays a very important role. We have all kinds of seeds in our cells, all kinds of genes in our cells, a gene of depression, a gene of joy. And it is an environment that turns on that element of depression. Uh, turn off. Um, choosing an environment or creating an environment is the answer. When the country was uh, divided into north and south and mother passed away, I had depression. And the doctors could not help me. I healed myself uh, just thanks to the practice of mindful breathing, mindful walking, and I put myself into an environment conducive to healing. And uh, when the seed of joy, the seed of uh, compassion has been watered uh, enough, you can restore the balance. And you keep the practice so that um, the other kind of seed will not, will not be watered again. It's very important. And, uh, and then you will transmit and continue to transmit that kind of uh, positive, wholesome uh, element to the next generation. Uh, that is what uh, they uh, practice also. Because they, their deepest wish is to transmit the best things that he has, uh, he has uh, been able to, to achieve and try to uh, transform uh, the things that he is not happy with, and this is a permanent um, 
long term practice always allowing the good seed to be watered by a good environment and always trying to protect yourself from the watering of negative seeds because the negative seed will always be there even after you have become a Buddha. A Buddha is not a person who does not have negative seeds. A Buddha is someone who knows how to how to how to protect himself so that the negative seed in him will be not be watered by himself and by others. And the Buddha is someone who knows how to allow his good seed to be watered every day so happiness and compassion can grow every day. So I do have a seed of depression. And all of us have a seed of depression. But if we know the practice of uh, right uh, diligence, maybe we have uh, a time to learn about right diligence tomorrow. And then we'll be okay. And the other kind of seed will have uh, no chance to manifest and take us away. Tomorrow, dear Sangha, the ceremony of uh, the transmission of five uh, mindfulness trainings will, will take place a little bit uh, later than today. Um, because our friends who are in resort uh, need the time to check out. And uh, that is why it will be, uh, we will gather here at uh, 6.45, uh, right? 6.30 or 6.45? 6.45. Everyone hear that? 6.35, they will be here sitting. Thank you.